You guys can have a seat. I feel a little bit like a jack-in-the-box and Joe's not here to do announcements. Down, up, down, up. Um, uh, we'll be in Proverbs chapter 7 today. <clears throat> uh, we're working our way through Proverbs chapters 1 through 9, uh, and, and we're looking for wisdom, in a sense. We're looking to see what the Bible says about wisdom, but when we understand the Bible's sense of wisdom, uh, we understand that this isn't about having a to-do list of things to check off. Uh, wisdom isn't simply just about how you can balance your checkbook better or invest in annuities more effectively. Uh, wisdom is about knowing who God is and the reality of the world that he has made. Um, I will go ahead and pray for us, and we will uh, dig in. Uh, King Jesus, we do pray for wisdom. We pray to understand who you are, the reality of what your gospel is, uh, who we are in the wake of your gospel, in the wake of your cross, who we are as your people, uh, who our city is without you. And, and I pray for those who don't know you that today they would. If anyone here is here, they would hear about who you are. They would know who you are. They would love you the way we love you. And that you would save people here and throughout the Bible-believing churches of our city and our region today. Uh, Jesus, we do love you and pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, so today we're talking about sin, which is everybody's favorite topic in the whole wide world to discuss. Um, but what's really important for us as Christians is to understand what sin is, because if we use this word, sin, which is an important word, and, and we use it to say things like, Jesus has forgiven you for all of your sins, we need to make sure that we actually know what we are even talking about. Um, not only that, um, we need to know what it is, and we need to know what the answer to it is, because as Christians, we actually believe there's an answer to it. Uh, not only that, we need to know um, how did it get here and where it's going. Before we can even dig into this text, we have to sort of lay these planks. The, the reality is, is sin is not just our wiling out and disobedience, which is often, I think, if you're not a Christian and, and you think of sin, you think of that. You think of just getting crazy or wiling out or whatever that might be, however you want to fill in that blank. But as Christians, we understand sin is actually greater than that. Uh, it is absolutely disobedience against God. It is absolutely hurting uh, God and others. It is absolutely rebellion and selfishness and all those things. But in addition to that, we also believe that it's sort of self-glorification. It's, it's the right things we do for the wrong reasons. Uh, it, it's the things that we do so that we can either feel right in the world or right with God or good about ourselves. Uh, I gave away some diapers to a food bank I'm awesome, throw me a parade. Well, if you, if you gave diapers to Family Works, which you actually should do because they're image bearers of God and need it, but if you do it so everyone will like clap or you can pat yourself on the back, you're not giving them diapers, you're giving yourself the diapers, right? Now, that doesn't mean don't bring diapers. We, we actually, the answer is not to not bring diapers, by the way. The answer is to do that with the heart that says, yeah, Jesus gave me everything, and so there it is, uh, by the way, and all of a sudden the diapers dry up because you misheard what I said. Um, but in addition to that, it's unbelief. It's, it's not believing Jesus. It's not believing he's God. And not only not believing that he's God, but believing something else takes priority in the universe. Something else is more important than him. This is worship. This is putting something else in the center uh, or trying to displace God from his right place in the center of the universe and putting something out there, which is often the little idol that we see in the mirror ourselves that we if you buy into a, a sort of king of the mountain mentality that, that you've got to step on other people to get somewhere in life or, or that, you know, you believe sort of the rat race or the dog eat dog or the survival of the fittest of, 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 of really predominant like sort of businessy corporate culture, right? Uh, uh, if you believe these things, right, you end up putting yourself first and the, and the thing that's in the center of the universe for you is, is you. Now, the good news is, and we don't wait for the punchline, this is where I could preach for 45 minutes and talk about sin, and we say, okay, that's great. The good news is, to all those things, there is an answer, and his name is Jesus. That Jesus has come and lived the life that we should have lived. Jesus has come to save us from ourselves. Jesus has come to cleanse us from all our iniquity. Jesus has come to rightly be our God. Jesus has come to reveal God to us. Jesus has not only done that, he's come to change us, to give us new hearts and new lives, and lives full of joy, knowing him and loving him and loving people because of what he's done, and that frees us. Because the reality is that sin came from somewhere because God made everything good. The reality is human beings broke it in their rebellion against him. I feel like I'm a little two-faced. There we go. Uh, by that I mean the shadow of my face makes me look weird, and so I'm moving more into the light. Uh, the reality is that God made everything good, and we broke it. Human beings broke it. 
Human beings have rebelled against God. I've rebelled against God. You've rebelled against God. I've done all of those things. That I believe something else is more important than Jesus. I believe that something else justifies me other than his cross and his resurrection. I've just wiled out in my life, and Jesus has saved me. And if you're a Christian, he saved you. And if you're not a Christian, he will save you from all those things and is actually doing this on the cosmic scale. And I have to start my timer or we'll never make it to lunch. So the trajectory of history goes that we broke it. God being gracious, made a promise to fix it, fulfills that promise in the person of Jesus Christ who comes to save us from ourselves and ultimately comes to save the world in all of its mess and muck. And now we live between now and his return when he finally wipes every tear from every eye, puts the world back the way it's supposed to be as people who bring this good news. Wherever we go, as carriers of this awesome message of the reconciliation that God's working uh, in the world and with individuals. Okay, now what does that have to do with Proverbs? Uh, if you go with me to chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now remember, we're in Proverbs, and much of uh, Proverbs 1 through 9 is all written by Solomon, uh, who is a king, and he's using a number of literary devices to guide us and lead us and to give us wisdom. Uh, verse 1, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Uh, now remember because you can't preach all nine chapters in one day, because I would read the nine chapters and then sit down, and that would be it. No exegesis whatsoever, right? Now, remember, the thing about wisdom is that we understand it in, in understanding the framework for reality. And to understand reality, you must understand who God is. It has to start with understanding who made everything, what it is made for, and how we, his creatures, live in that world. And so, despite the fact that, that we're not going to get the complete unpacking of that reality, that's what, where Proverbs has been taking us again and again and again and again. So this isn't just dad giving some advice, right? Anybody can do that. Anyone can give good advice. Anyone can give bad advice. You know, I, I think there's the, the phenomenon, right? If you're the, the commencement speaker, you come out and you say, you just follow the passions of your heart and life and you'll get anything you want. That's my advice to you. And everyone claps. Yay! It turns out that doesn't actually work for everybody. <laughs> Some people that does work for, but it's not for everybody. But they never hire the commencement speaker who says, you know, eh, we'll see how it goes. Thank you, good night. Um, but this wisdom is based in reality, and the reality of who God is. And, and, and so, my son, keep my words and treasure my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Now, we're, we're going to walk into this situation of this sort of seductress character, but we need to understand this is in literary framework, and, and we'll see this in a second. Uh, it's going to say some things about adultery, which are all true, uh, but he has in mind a bigger picture, and that's the seductive nature of sin. So everything that he's going to say here is true of that situation, but it actually goes bigger and beyond that, and I, and I think I'll show, you, I, I'll show you why. So verse 6, uh, for the window of my house, and if you've been with us through these last few weeks, you'll notice a change in this, in this paragraph. From at the window of my house, I've looked out through my lattice, and I have among, uh, and seen among the simple, uh, there are a few words in Hebrew here for different kinds of people. Uh, the simple is someone who's lacking sense, who's lacking a framework for understanding, who's lacking how the world works, but hope is not lost. They can grow and be built up and get wisdom. However, when you're the simple, you can go one way or the other, right? We'll see other, other folks in the book of Proverbs, you know, the, the hard-hearted sluggard who it's hopeless for him. Uh, but this guy, it's not hopeless for, but he's also in danger. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths a man lacking sense. It's about to go poorly for him. Passing along the street uh, near her corner, uh, that's the, uh, the, the seductress, the adulteress, uh, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, and the time of night, and darkness. This is a cautionary tale, right? So he's looking out his lattice, it's a, it's a literary framework because from his lattice he can't see all of these things, right? But he's saying, I've seen these things in life. 
I've seen simple people be seduced by sin, and I've seen them go down a very bad road. And it's dangerous. This is a cautionary tale. Now, as we dig into this, we're not going to stop there. We're going to see three things, I hope. One, we're going to see the seduction of sin. But two, we're going to see the salvation from sin. And three, to use an old-timey word, we're going to look at what it is to mortify sin. Mortify means to kill. means to go to war with. Um, and, and I think we're going to get it from this text. So what we're going to do here is I'm going to go through the text line by line, as I always do. We're going to point out a couple of things on our way, a little bit of a tour guide, and then we're going to look at those three points and how it applies to the text so we can pull out the ideas. Okay. And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, willy of heart. Um, this is an idiomatic phrase. Uh, you may have a note. If you're in the ESV, there'll be a note at the bottom of your Bible that says of guarded heart. Uh, it, it means that, that she's doing the seductive work but isn't looking to like, give herself away. Uh, she's looking for something out of the deal. Uh, and this is true of our temptation, particularly Satan, which as Christians we believe in Satan, by the way. Uh, Satan uh, is not the queen on the chessboard with God. Uh, he's a malevolent force. He uses malevolent forces. He's out in the world. Temptation from him is real. Now, we get this from 1 John and elsewhere. Uh, there's three main places we get temptation from the flesh, from the world, and from the devil. And so we don't think all temptation is Satan made me do it. Um, the reality is the world, and, and we'll look at this further, the world entices us, calls us out. Come and enjoy. Come, come. Sprite says, come, obey your thirst. Thanks, Sprite. Horrible advice. Horrible advice. But it's all over, right? Or it was 10 years ago. Obey your thirst. So that's the world calling us. That's, that's doing our life in Seattle. We need to be aware of that. And then there's our own internal desires. There, there's our own desire for sin, our own willingness to be seduced by sin. But in Isha, we actually believe Satan is real and Satan actually wants you to die and is actually calling you to sin and rebellion because all sin and rebellion is against God. Satan does not care what you do as long as it is opposed to Jesus. Satan has a guarded heart in the sense... He's not emotionally invested in you, right? He just wants you to die. That's the deal. So that can be addiction. That can be good works. Uh, that could be seduction in the, the most proper sense of the word. could be any of these things. He doesn't care. He's putting the hook, and this is Thomas Brooks, who was a Puritan, wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices in, like, I'll get the year wrong, Thonium Tri. Um, doesn't care what's on the hook. I think Thomas Brooks uses the word gaff, which I think is a hook, right? He doesn't care what's on the hook as long as you bite, as long as it leads you away, right? She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Uh, now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner, she lies in wait. Um, in Genesis 4, uh, God tells Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It, sin almost has a personification in that case. So I, I think it follows. It has the same kind of feel to it in, in a literary sense. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, this is underlined in my Bible because this is important, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my own vows. This is called religion. That's a weird thing to say, right? I mean, I don't know. If, if you read your Bible slowly, you're like, why would she say that? That's weird. So our, our inclination towards religion, which is different than the gospel, the gospel is Jesus has done everything for us. Religion says, I do things to get up to God, whatever they be. I meditate my way to God. I uh, Barnes & Noble Buddhist Zen garden my way to God. I, I do good works my way to God. I, I've done the right things, and the scales are balanced and even. And so she's saying, I've put some weight on the good scale. We've done some religion. So hey, by the way, now let's put some weight on the bad scale. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen, and I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. 
And, and so what's happening here is this horrible, horrible, horrible thing is made to look appetizing. And this is the seduction of sin. When we have wisdom, when we have a clarity, when we understand who God is, who we are, if you're a Christian, what Jesus has done to make you his own, of course it's horrible. And yet, somehow, either in the flesh, the world, and the devil, it gets laid out on a platter and it looks good all of a sudden. It looks good all of a sudden. Now hear what he says. So we've just switched from the scene. Okay, new paragraph. The, we're in the ESV. It doesn't do a great job of showing. These are actually different paragraphs. Everywhere I've had a major stop, there's another major stop in the paragraph in the Hebrew. So now it's back to the Father's voice, kind of giving his commentary and unpacking what's happening. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know it will cost him his life. Last week we looked at a passage, and I don't think it's coincidental that they sit next to each other, uh, which was sort of our uh, playing with fire, you get burned uh, moment there in chapter uh, 6. You know, if you put fire in your coat, thinking it's going to be okay. The reality is a lot of times with sin, we think, well, I, I can do a little bit. I won't go to that website. I'll go to one that's kind of like it and not as bad, and I'll be okay. Uh, I, I, won't, I won't steal a lot of money, just a little money. I won't get really, really, really inebriated. I'll just, I'll just get a little bit, and it'll be okay. The problem is that that road of seduction, whether it's addiction or greed or selfishness or whatever, uh, when you play with fire, you get burned. Because what we learn, and have seen, I think, again and again, repentance is where we turn from sin and we turn to God. We've seen this in, in Proverbs a few times. We'll see it throughout the Bible. Uh, the problem with turning to sin, even a little bit of sin, you're not facing Jesus you're not facing him and going towards him. You're actually going towards sin. You're going in the opposite direction of Jesus. And you cannot pursue sin and Jesus wholeheartedly at the same time. At the same time. And it leads to death. 24, here's his warning. And then we'll unpack these things, okay? And now, sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. I mean, this is a dad pleading with his sons at this point in time, right? It's a literary device. Solomon is pleading with us in the midst of this. And we looked at this a couple of weeks, weeks ago, right? This is Solomon, right? Solomon is not a good dude at the end of the day. Solomon gets trapped in all this nonsense, mumbo-jumbo, and sin. Now, did he write this before and, and fell into his own foolishness, or did he write it after? We don't actually know. But it is sort of interesting if you think about it, if, and I want to be careful here because the Bible doesn't say this, and so this is just to think, to ponder, if he's actually saying from his own personal experience. Because that's what, we do know that about Ecclesiastes. He does say that in Ecclesiastes. This will go poorly for you. One has to wonder in this literary device if Psalm is not pleading with us. This will go poorly for you. And now, sons, listen to me. And be attentive to my, the words of my mouth. Let not your heart uh, turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Stay focused towards God, not towards the sin. Uh, for many a victim has she laid low. And all her slain are a mighty throng. A bunch is what that means. Her house is the way to Sheol or the grave. Going down to the chambers of death. Okay, so... Now, we've heard the story, we've kind of heard the fathers unpacking, and from there we're going to look at these three ideas. The seduction of sin, the salvation from sin, right? Because we're Christians, so that means we get to connect us to Jesus, good news. And the mortification of sin. How do we, as Christians, operate in the world not going down the path? And really going down the path towards Jesus. What does that actually look like for us? So, the seduction of sin. Four parts. Um, we must be careful... From here, 
of religion. I'm using religion pejoratively. I don't always use the word religion pejoratively, but it's sometimes helpful. Uh, in this case, we need to watch out for anything that is self-justifying. If you go with me to Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. I'll read it and we'll unpack it. And so by religion, I mean anything we do to try and earn God's favor, anything we do to try and cover sins we're about to commit or cover sins we have committed. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 says this. Oh, man, this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, and I'll unpack that in a minute, I promise. I'll just read the whole thing, and then we'll kind of take it apart. Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. We'll unpack that, too, I promise. Verse 4, you are, served, uh, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. Um, uh, for you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of the righteous. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So we have a tendency toward that sin that's self-salvation, self-justification, earning what we deserve from God. God owes me because I'm a nice person. God owes me because I've been faithful and I've read my Bible. God owes me, or because I'm good enough, I can do whatever I want. Paul is warning us against that so strongly. Because the reality of the gospel is that Jesus came to set you free from works. He came to set you free from self-salvation, self-glorification, and anything that you do to say, look, God, I did this for you, now you have to love me. It's way, 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 way better than that in the gospel. The reality of the gospel is you are dead in your trespasses and sins, but he came to save you and make you alive together with him for his glory and for our joy, which means we come to God with completely empty hands. We didn't do anything to earn it. This is what sets Christianity out and against any other system or idea. It's the reality that I can't get to God and God had to come down to get to me. And so it is sinful and wrong for me to try and do it any other way. And Paul's warning against that. There's a massive debate in the first century church particularly with the Greeks. These are things we don't think about now because it got settled 2,000 years ago. But the question is, basically, uh, if Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, if he's Messiah, which he is, how Jewish do Christians have to be to be in with Messiah? Now, they have a huge debate over this. It happens in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, and, and they go to work, and there's a lot of disagreement. How serious does this have to be? And mind you, this is grown Greek men who are having this conversation. So it's a serious conversation. Um, it's not just a medical procedure. It's an entrance into uh, uh, sacrificial and ceremonial and, and religious rites. It's more than just a medical procedure. It's a big deal, right? And some are saying, well, you have to, yes, Jesus saves you, plus you have to do these other things. Jesus saves you, plus circumcision. Jesus saves you, plus the observance of the law. Now, this can seem almost a little absurd to us 2,000 years later, but we need to be very careful here. Because when we get into Jesus saves you, plus you have to do X, Y, and Z to be a good Christian, we have just entered into the same problem. And what is Paul fighting for? He's fighting for the unfettered and, and, and just bold gospel of Jesus, right? It's for freedom that Christ set you free. He saved you from yourself not to put more burdens on you. Don't again put on the yoke of slavery. Don't be entangled. Don't be ensnared. This is Greek word is fascinating, but it means to get caught up and trapped. Don't put the yoke of the law again. You didn't come, become a Christian so you could put more law on you so you could earn God's love. You became a Christian because Jesus has saved you, and because he saved you, we respond. Absolutely we pursue Jesus because he's so wonderful and beautiful and that's exactly why he set you free to enjoy him and glorify him with absolutely every fiber of your being in every corner of your life. And that comes through his cross and that comes through his resurrection and as soon as you add something to it, it's not the gospel anymore. Watch. 5-1 again. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore. I mean, you want to talk about how Christianity is different. So this little word, set us free, it's used in a ton of context. So in Greek democracy, it's used to kind of describe self-determination. And I think we need to hear that as Americans. 
It, it describes what it is to be a free Greek citizen. I am set free. I get to vote. I get to make decisions. I get to do what I want to do because I'm a citizen of Greece. You could take all of those phrases and put America right there, right? We are so blessed to live in a place. We're meeting publicly. Good night. We are blessed, and I am thankful. And I'm, I'm not trying to uh, decry anything. I'm not trying to make a polemic statement. I'm just saying we have a sense of self-determination as Americans that say, I get to do what I want to do when I want to do because I'm an American, which is beautiful, except for when we harness that for sin, right? But, but that's what it means there. And, and, and then to the Stoics, guys like Plato, the sort of Stoicism and, and the things that Plato and uh, Aristotle, well, Socrates for sure are into, is the sense of, of inward freedom. So, and this is very applicable for us in Seattle, right? That I, have to, that I have to focus on my inward spiritual life. The body is bad, the spirit is good, and I need to be hyper-spiritual to be separate from those things and be set free. Second Temple Judaism, which Jesus is born into, uh, has a sense that Messiah is going to come and liberate us and set us free from Rome. Same word is used all these different places in the literature. He's going to come set us free from Rome, so it's, so it's political being set free. But the gospel of Jesus Christ transcends all of that and is so much good. Jesus has come to set you free from sin. Jesus has come to set you free to a life in God. That's way bigger than political. That's, that's way better uh, than uh, the, the freedom of democracy. Democracy is awesome here on earth. This is bigger. And it's better than I have to focus really hard to liberate myself. No, Jesus comes to spiritually set you free. And I think Paul's being on purpose. Paul is being purposeful with his use of that word, by the way, to set Jesus up and against any kind of freedom you can imagine. Let's keep going. You are severed from Christ. You would be ju- who would be justified by the law? You are fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Through love, praise the Lord. The good news is the gospel, is that Jesus has done it all, and you can't have it both ways. It can't be Jesus plus some works. It's got to be all Jesus or it's not grace. It's got to be all a gift or it's not a gift. It's a consolation prize, right? Okay. So, but that, there's a seduction there, right? Because you can check it off. Well, I got up, I read my Bible. I, I did the things I was supposed to do. I worked hard. I put food on the, family, the, the table for my family. Uh, I didn't do things I wasn't supposed to do. God owes me the life I think I deserve, and I've worked really hard. That's sin. You know, I had, I had to offer sacrifices. I did my religious duty today. So I get to do what I want with everything else. Uh, disobedience, our rebellion, our wiling out, also sin. Ephesians 2 says this. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. How serious is our situation apart from Christ? We're dead. But I have good news. We'll keep going. And once you once walked following the course of this world, uh, that's that world thing, following the prince of the power uh, of the air, uh, in Ephesus they found archaeological remains of papyri, where that's actually a phrase that's used for pretend gods that people worshipped at the time, so he's connecting Satan to the pretend gods at the time, um, uh, the first century time. Uh, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, Who, what? Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body. Passion's not bad. Desire's not bad. Passion put towards the destructive nature of sin is bad. Desire for sin and death is bad. Passion for Jesus is good. A desire to love God and love others is good. We need to right it. We need to fix it. We need to correct it. Um, uh, We're built that way as human beings, and it's good, but we point all that stuff at nasty stuff that kills us. That's what we do, whether it's religion or wiling out, right? And and so we just have a tendency to want to do what we want to do, right? It's not just religion and and self-serving. Sometimes you just want to do what you just want to do, and you don't want anybody to tell you not to do the thing you want to do. That's what it means. Here's the good news. But God, wait, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body 
and a mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is, this is reality, right? But it's, it's not just one drum we beat. It's the, um, we have that drum going, but we also have the Jesus saves sinners. The good news is that this is our problem, and God has come to fix it in the person of Jesus. Uh, but, verse 4, oh, it's good. That's a good conjunction right there. But God being rich in mercy, so this is what we're doing. We're rebelling against God. We're disobeying God. We're against God. And it doesn't say, and then you sort of changed your mind and, you know, you scraped out the rocks and you raked the rocks in your Zen garden you got from Barnes & Noble and you felt better about it and you bought your, you know, your, your colleague at work a latte and then God said, you know, he is a nice guy after all. But God, being rich in mercy, because the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God saved you as a gift, and that's what sets Jesus apart from any other thing ever, period. It is a gift, and you didn't earn it. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him. This is amazing. You're not just saved. Listen to this. I'm not even supposed to read this far. I'm going to keep going. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Your salvation is a gift. You're not just forgiven from your sins. You're made right and alive together with God. Okay. Unbelief. This story is about a woman who's saying, my husband's gone. He's not coming back. Don't worry. We can do what we want to do. Not believing that God does what God does. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 6 says this, one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. God is not mocked by our disbelief. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And that's grace. That's sowing and reaping in the Spirit. That's grace. Paul's going to say in Galatians, did you who began by the Spirit, you're going to finish this thing in works? You were saved by grace, you're going to finish this thing because you're going to start doing some spiritual push-ups and do some nice things out of your own effort and energy? Do you realize the cosmic nature of your sin wiped out by Jesus who drank the cup so you don't have to? It's huge. But she's saying, He's not going to see. He's not going to know. We're going to do what we're going to want to do. And this all ultimately, as we hear in 21 through 23, leads to death. Leads to death. Go with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. <clears throat> we'll start in 20. No, I'll start in 20. No, I'll start 22. That's what I'm going to do. But now that you have been set free from sin, so it's not just that we're set free from the law and from works, we're also set free from sin. The things that are true of Galatians 5, 1 through 6 of the law are true also of our disobedience. But now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. It's being set apart and made holy. That's being changed uh, what's amazing about the gospel is that he doesn't just save us and leave us where we're at. He saves us and changes us and makes us new and gives us new hearts and new desires and, and, and the Holy Spirit and that we get to live a life now for God, which is awesome, right? But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. We get to be with God in the new heavens and the new earth forever. Once he's put everything back the way it's supposed to be, when he undoes Genesis 3, and it's like Genesis 2, but even better. Which is a whole other sermon, I'm just going to move on. For the wages of sin is death. 
facing sin is death. Spiritual death. In some cases, it leads to actual physical death. He's not after the physical death. He's after the spiritual death. Because we're to be spiritually dead. But the free gift of God, hear that. Free gift of God. God seeing us in that state. It doesn't say put on your Sunday best and try harder and be a better person. The free gift of God. The Jesus alone. The Jesus plus nothing gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Sin is seductive. Sometimes the buffet looks good, right? But here's the good news. There's salvation from sin. The salvation from self-glorification or religion is the gospel. It's the reality that Jesus Christ has done it all. Jesus did it all. He has done it all. All to him I owe, right? Jesus has done it all. The answer is not switching systems to a better system. When I was lost, when I was New Agey, Buddhist, sort of thingy, Northwestern guy, the trick was you switch from one system to another, to another, to another, to another. And the thing is, if you're being honest with yourself, after you've switched from system to system to system to system, you realize though they have different facets, they are all the same. They are all about doing things to get right with yourself, to get right with the universe, to get right with God, to get up into a spiritual state or whatever, and they are all religion, blanket. The gospel is different. The gospel is the reality that God has come to save you from yourself. Jesus, Jesus came, lived, died, rose to make you free, to make you clean, to forgive you, to make you one with God, to atone for your sins, and to make you live. The answer to our religion, and as Christians, when we're having it, well, we'll get to mortification in a second. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll stop. This is the good news. Let's just sit on the good news of that. Yes, I have been religious, and if you have likely been religious, and the good news is that Jesus saves from that and if you are like me right now and you're switching from system to system to system to system, I will tell you that Jesus has come to save you and you can't get up to him. He gets down to you. He dies on the cross to pay the price for your sins and makes you right with God. Number two, the answer to our disobedience is Christ's obedience. You lived a life, you have lived a life, I've lived a life disobedient to God and yet God takes his obedient life, the only sinless man who ever lived, doing all the right things all of the time in our place. Not only that, Jesus is obedient unto the cross. Jesus drinks the cup of wrath so I don't have to. Wrath is the word for the business end of God's justice. That God doesn't let evil go. Right? We, we know there's evil in the world. I was at the eyeglasses place last week in our neighborhood, and I picked up a sticker that said, fight evil. And it didn't say uh, Ephesians 6 underneath, right? Which is the, uh, we don't wrestle against powers and principalities. Or we don't wrestle against flesh and powers and principalities, right? It was just said, fight evil, right? And they meant like corporate greed and stuff. Right? So we have a sense that this is, this is real and this is true. The reality is when we have a close look at ourselves, we realize we do sin. He was obedient, and he was obedient to death, and he rose from the dead. So for our disobedience, not only is he obedient, but he's only also obedient to the cross where he drinks the cup of wrath that I ultimately deserve in my place because he's such a good, wonderful, loving God. Not only that, but in terms of our, our disbelief, Jesus saves us from idolatry, becomes our God. God reveals himself to us in his Son, the answer to our unbelief is belief in Jesus who has shown himself to us. Right? The answer, the saving answer to all of our sin problems are ultimately Jesus. And just as the Father warned that this will lead to death, Jesus came to die and to give us life. The answer to us being dead in our trespasses and sins 
the only innocent man who ever lived came and died in my place. He died. The only, I mean, think about that for just a moment as we approach Holy Week. The only person who never, ever, ever did any wrong ever is executed as a criminal. This is what some called the scandal of the cross, and it is scandalous. Horrible. And yet he died so that you and I could live. God's amazing. And so now how do we get this in the nooks and the crannies of our life? Okay? Because as Christians, we're Colossians and Gentiles, we're taking off the old man and we're putting on the new. If you're a Christian, you belong to Jesus, <coughs> and yet we still have sin in our life. Yes? <coughs> Excuse me. As we saw in Romans 6, God is moving in our lives to make us more like his son through his son to give us life. But what does that actually look like? How do I actually deal with this without just white knuckling and saying, well, I know I'm supposed to be kind because I'm a Christian and Christians are kind. How do I not just do the spiritual push-ups and push the feeling of just pushing it down inside, Right? I've got anger, and I just got to push my anger down inside. I've got rage. I've got to push my rage inside. I've got addiction. I just got to push it down inside and just hope, oh, man, hope that it stays down where it belongs. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. And if you were like me, when you've attempted to do that with whatever the thing in your life is, it ultimately doesn't feel all that free. When you're busy pushing it down, you're just as entangled to your addiction as you were when you were addicted. Now, I'm not saying while out. I'm saying there's an answer that's not this one. The mortification of sin. And I take this title from John Owen, who wrote an amazing book called The Mortification of Sin. Buy it, read his five points in the front, and you got the price of admission right there. It's a great book. He's long since dead. Dead guys write good books or wrote good books when they were alive guys. But, okay, so if, if our problem is self-glorification, how do we fix that problem? Our problem is that we worship our way into problems. We just worship the wrong things. How do we worship? How do we deal with that then? Again, it's not pushing that. We worship our way out of it. If you're doing things for your own glory, for your own joy, and for your own self-satisfaction, we don't just say, stop it. We say, man, how do I turn this around and get back to the real deal of worshiping Jesus? Right? How do I turn this thing around instead of making it about me, making it about him? I'm not saying don't bring diapers. I'm saying be mindful of the fact that every dollar in your wallet came from Jesus. Every person you're blessing is created in his image, and he prepared these good works for you before the foundations of the earth that you might walk in them for his glory and for his joy. Jesus said it's better to give than it is to receive, and it's a gift. Welcome. It's a gift. It's a party, right? We're not pushing it down. We're enjoying. We're rejoicing. We're looking at the cross. We're looking at the resurrection. We're realizing how much we have, and we're embracing that response. How do we war against our religion? The gospel. How do we war against putting our affections on something else? Putting them back towards Jesus. Pointing our hearts back to who he is. And how do we do that? Man, his word is so helpful. His word is so helpful to that truth. You just get down in there. I'm not saying get into Leviticus. There's a lot of glory in Leviticus. But I'm saying you go to Philippians 3 and you hear about how Jesus set aside his divine rights and entered into human history, not counting quality with God a thing to be grasped. And he came and he did this thing. And you get into Romans 8 and you realize, whoop, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is true of you. And you turn your heart and your affection back onto him. You turn on the radio to good Christian music that's about Jesus. Or you don't turn on the radio and you sing. And you remember who he is. And even when we stand up and sing, it's beautiful, right? We're worshiping him. He's present with us. We're singing songs to him. And in a sense, I think we're also singing songs to each other because we're hearing each other say the truth. Uh, me and some of the guys got to go do our, with our church network, we went to a, a, a men's uh, retreat this weekend. I think most of them would tell you uh, on the first night in particular, uh, we sang songs, and there were, we were some, I heard somebody talking about I think we were talking about it earlier even today. There's a time when all the music just kind of fades back, and we're singing, uh, 
I think we're singing. I, we're just an old hymn. I don't even remember which one. It doesn't even matter, right? And there's just something cool that happens when you can just hear the voices of the other people gathered with you singing the truth of the gospel. It's good for our hearts. And this is what community is about, right? It's about being honest with people. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the, the push-ups and the push-downs. I need the truth. I'm feeling weak, and I need help. Give me the truth. Serve it up for me. You read me the Bible. Please, right? Please tell me the truth. Please bring the gospel to bear on my life. And that's real community. It's, I mean, it's easy to talk about donuts and stuff. It's harder to look somebody in the eye when you're like, this is even maybe an uncomfortable moment when I actually get to do the Jesus thing and get to say, hey, by the way, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I know you're feeling condemned, man. I know this is a hard moment, but I, I'm telling you the truth. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm telling you, you've got the hairs on your head numbered. I'm telling you, he knows your name. He knows you. He's ordained the, the boundaries of your life, Acts 17. And that's not just my job to you here on Sunday. This is what we get to do together as the people of God all the time. And that's community. That's real community. Okay, but not only that, uh, obedience. When we're having, when we're just wiling out, when we're doing what we want to do, we, we need to be real with it. I don't know why I keep doing this thing. Well, at least on some level, it's because you want to. And I'm not saying it's hard, and I'm not saying there's not problems, and I'm not saying you're not knee-deep in your own junk, and I'm not saying it's for you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and I'm not saying we're not in it with you. I'm not saying any of those things, because those things are all true. Sometimes you find yourself so knee-deep in your own sin and disobedience that you just need a bunch of people to walk with you. And there is a church here who will walk with you. But sometimes we have to acknowledge part of the reason I got into this mess is because I actually wanted to get into this mess. Well, what's the solution that we trust and obey? We love Jesus. We believe him when he says, that will kill you. We say, yes, Jesus, I believe you. That will kill me. That will lead to death. Thank you, Jesus, for not having me run out in the street. I believe you. And we obey. Um, our response to unbelief is belief. Again, worship. Unbelief leads to the worship and adoration of other things. You worship your way into the problem. You worship your way out of it. You turn to Jesus. And you will live. How is a Christian to live? Joy. You know who God is. You know who you are. And you live in the joys that he's given you. Paul says it twice, rejoice, again, I say, rejoice, from prison, right? He understands who he is, he understands who's got him, and he understands where the story is going, as God puts all things back the way they're supposed to be. I don't have the answer for evil, but I do know from Romans 8, that however horrible in this world it can be, horrible it is, because of our sin sin in the world. It's going to be that much better when God restores all things and wipes every tear from every eye. So turn to that reality. If you don't know Jesus, he is a savior. Turn to him. He'll save you from your self-righteousness and your self-salvation and your self-glorification and your projects you build to try and get up to God. He'll forgive you for all your wrongdoing that you've ever done. He knows every nook and every cranny and every horrible thing you've ever done against yourself or others or God or wherever it may be, and he forgives. And every worship of every wrong thing and every horrible thing you believe that's contrary to this gospel and this reality, he forgives you for those things when you turn to him. This is the truth of the gospel. Repent and believe. And, and if you're a Christian, it's a good time to take both a sober assessment of, man, what's creeping in my life? What's... What's served up at the uh, old country buffet of sin that sounds really good that I, I know I shouldn't be pursuing? And how do we turn from our sin and turn to Jesus and live? And what's amazing is that starts now, right? We're going to take communion in a minute. The reality is, is that you don't have to do things to get right with God if you're a Christian in the sense that you have to do something to get saved because you are saved if you're a Christian. You are forgiven. You are known. And so our task then is to turn from our sin and turn to Jesus and to respond to the reality of who he is and all of his beauty and all of his glory.
The way we glorify Him and point to His beauty is we enjoy Him and we know Him and we live. And I mean it when I say this, and that's a fight. The fight for joy is a real fight. But you're not alone. You have a new heart. You have the Holy Spirit. You have King Jesus. You have a church to walk with you. And the reality is that's a lot. You have a lot to celebrate in there. You're forgiven. You're so, I mean, we, we saw two passages. You're free from the law, and you're free from sin. And so as free people, we're not going to stand up and sing in a minute so that God might like what we're doing. We're going to stand up and sing because he set us free. That, that is fuel on the fire for the war against sin, is realizing who you are right now. And so in a minute, we're going to take communion. Uh, logistically, what we have here, on the little plate, we have gluten-free. On the big plate, we have non-gluten, nor bread. We have bread. <laughs> we have wine, we have juice, and we have a basket for the offering for the work of the ministry. Now, we take, Paul warns us to take our sins seriously, to, to examine ourselves and look at this stuff. But we examine ourselves, we look at this stuff, we repent, we turn from our sin. And then when we come up and we take this, we come up and take this as free people who've been bought by the blood of the Lamb. And we dip the bread in the wine or the juice, and we remember Jesus' body broken and blood shed. Why? To make you free, to pay the price for your sins, to make you his own, which means we get to stand up and sing. Because we have a lot to sing about. So if you're a Christian, I would invite you to come and take this with us. Um, this is a family meal. This is for people who have had that experience and that reality. Um, and so we, we do the work of considering ourselves when we come up and we celebrate together the reality of Jesus and his forgiveness for all of our sins. I'm going to pray for us and we'll stand up and sing. Lord, sin's real. Its seduction is real. Uh, its enticement is real. Uh, the appetite for it is real. And you came and you defeated everything that needed to be defeated, defeated to set us free. So I pray for us that we wouldn't war against our sin to try and earn your love, but we'd war against our sin because you've already given us your love. We, we wouldn't war against our sin so that we can be justified to you. We war against our sin because we are justified by you. We're not warring against our sin so that you might love us. We are warring against our sin because you love us. We are free people. I pray for anyone who this is the first time they've heard this good news that they would know you today. I pray for our city that this truth would spread here. And I just pray for us, Lord, that we would just enjoy you more and more and more and more. And that our battle would be a battle that we know is really ultimately already won in the cross and won in the resurrection. We love you, Jesus. Pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.